Hey, Post Everything listeners, John here. We're winding down season one of Post Everything and already looking forward to season two. Brad and I have been on quite a journey so far. This has always been about us having the freedom to explore and learn as we remap culture and rethink leadership in our liminal age. And you've been along for the trek with us, exploring and learning as well. And as we thought about that, that relationship that we have with you, we realized we want to end season one by really engaging with you. We want to hear your questions and your thoughts and what you're thinking about. Was there an interview that brought up a deeper question for you? Are you pivoting your leadership and finding out there are new things you're asking about? Or maybe you're examining the cultural map with us and wondering about a particular feature of its landscape. We want to hear where you're at and what questions you have. In the show notes, you'll find a link to click and send us your questions. Then on the last episode of the season, we'll engage with your questions and give a response from what we've learned on this journey. So take a moment, think about a question that's come up and click on the link in the show notes to ask it. We really appreciate your support and engagement. Now on to this episode. I mean, I literally have younger leaders say to me, you know, so how long are we going to be in this adaptive moment? And I'm like, well, we were in Christendom for, you know, 1700 years. We've been in post Christendom for about 10 minutes. I'm probably dying in the exile and you probably are too. I tell people all the time, it's not about keeping your church alive. Paul's churches are not alive, but we are here. It's about passing on that faith, whatever you do. When our post-everything world has turned life upside down, how do you even know which end is up? If you're committed to a community or a cause greater than yourself, you don't have the luxury of checking out or the freedom to burn out. It's not enough to just keep surviving. We need to thrive again. This is Post Everything a podcast about remapping culture and rethinking leadership in a liminal age. All right, welcome back to Post Everything. We are more than halfway through season one now. We're actually about three quarters of the way through. And just to give a really quick overview of where we've been, especially in the second half, where we've been focused on what it means to rethink leadership in a liminal age. And if you've been listening so far, you know that we are really big fans of a book called Leadership on the Line and this idea of adaptive and technical categories. It's just been really helpful handholds for understanding what is adaptive leadership? What does it look like to lead in a liminal space? As well as like, what do we need to do externally in leading others as well as leading ourselves and being the kinds of leaders in health and in challenging circumstances? How do we even do that? And how do we have the resources to not just survive, but to thrive. And so we're kicking off one of our first interviews today with someone who we are especially excited to talk to and whose book we have leaned heavily on in the last three episodes as well. So John, who is it? We are talking today to Todd Bolsinger and Todd is a professor at Fuller Seminary. His role there as a senior congregational strategist and associate professor of leadership formation. Before that, he was actually a senior pastor himself for over 15 years at San Clemente Presbyterian Church. He has his PhD in theology and master of divinity from Fuller. And he's written two amazing books, one called Tempered Resilience, which is about how leaders are formed. But the one we lean heavily into is called Canoeing the Mountains, Christian Leadership in Uncharted Territory. And so let's dive in with Todd. Brad and I are here today talking with Todd Bolsinger. And Todd, welcome. We're glad that you're here. I'm glad to be with you. Thanks very much. Yeah, thank you for your time. You've written some incredible books that have been really helpful. In 2015, you wrote Canoeing the Mountains. Am I getting the year on that right? Was it 2015 that it first released? It was 2015. Yeah, it's been that long. 2015. And you know that was very timely because 2016 was a really tumultuous year, a really interesting election cycle. Mm -hmm. And then in 2020, November of 2020, you released Tempered Resilience. Mm -hmm. And I'm guessing that you, I mean, even though you released it late in 2020, you had to have the idea for this book before the pandemic started. 
So here's what Brad and I are wondering. Are you prophetic in some way? Because, uh, I mean, should we be really be talking to you about prophecy rather than leadership? Because you're two for two here. And, you know, just incredible timing on both of these books. We would love it, though, if you could write a book on the art and science of sabbaticals or the secret to power napping. Because whatever you write on, it's really applicable. And Brad and I could use a, a little rest. But Yeah, so we'd appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously... You know, the controlling paradigm for canoeing the mountains, we've mm. talked about that in a past episode. Mm. And the idea of trying to get somewhere with the wrong equipment, mm -hmm. with people who weren't equipped for it, and there was no map, we found that just the title of the book is like cathartic for leaders to hear. Mm -hmm. They just resonate with the title of the book. And so I was just wondering, in light of the book coming out in 2015, it's been some years, What's happened with the book, the concept of canoeing in the mountains since the pandemic? Was there a resurgence of interest mm -hmm. in the book and in the concept? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for asking. That's a, that's a great, great place to start. When I wrote Canoeing the Mountains, I wrote it over the summers of 2013 and 2014. And by that time, I had spent about seven years working on the material speaking on it, talking about it, working with it. And it was because the church was going through, I thought, a pretty cataclysmic change. After, you know, the better part of 1700 years with the church in the West being anchored in Christendom, which is, you know, post-Constantine's empire, the West giving Christianity what I call a home court advantage. Mm. Uh, we now were moving into a post-Christendom world. And that was happening in one generation, and that was pretty radical. After 1,700 years in one generation, for the church to move from the center of culture to the margins was really upsetting a lot of the paradigms about the way in which we think about church and leadership. And But what was interesting is in 2015, when I would talk about this, I would have people who would argue with me about it. They'd want me to spend the first hour of any time making my case. Are we really in a post-Christendom world? Well, then in 2015, 20, when the pandemic hit, <laughs> nobody argued with me about the fact that we were in wow. a deeply disrupted world. And so even though the word pandemic never shows up in Canoeing the Mountains, I mean, I always say I wrote it in 2014, came out in 2015. You can see that because I would never have had a chapter called the Mission Trumps if I had written it after 2016, <laughs> um, just because I do not need to take that on or would I care to. I mean, um, our vocabulary alone has changed dramatically yeah, since 2015. Yeah, like, yeah. so interesting. Well, and one of the most important and powerful parts of it that I really think is important is in 2015, when I released it, people who read it said, this is helpful because it makes sense of how disoriented I feel. Oh, man. And if they read to the end of the book, they got the punchline, which is while the world in front of us is different than the world behind us and we have to lead differently, we're not alone. There are already people who live in this new world. And that's why Sacagawea, who in 11th grade history class, we learned her name is Sacagawea. But Sacagawea, that's how Lewis and Clark heard her name and wrote her name. She's the hero. And what was mm -hmm. interesting is by the time we get to 2021 or 2022, people are saying to me, and rightly so, hey, look, you buried the person of color who's the hero back of the book. <laughs> sure. You centered this on, again, on you know, the privileged people of the West. And the answer to that is that's true. And that's something that I actually pick up when I did a video curriculum on this. I actually asked if I could record a new forward for it. But it also demonstrates how very rapidly people are becoming aware of issues that were led late dormant. And so this is the world we're in. Things are rapidly changing. And very, very quickly, you're having to learn as you go. If you stop learning, you become completely irrelevant and you're cast aside. And I think it's one of the reasons why Canoe in the Mountains continues to speak to people. Man, you almost could, if we were doing this in person, I would be handing you money right now because... <laughs> You are paraphrasing and summarizing a lot of what we've been talking about for this whole mm. podcast since its existence so far, especially in that 2015 kind of marked the beginning of not just a post-Christendom software, but the switching into and also the emergence of the post-Christendom hardware that mm. caught up to the software in 2020. And so it's not just the kind of feel or the ethos or the vibe of culture that feels post-Christian. It's really concrete and tangible in ways that have like 
we use the word disorientation frequently in that. And so that is really validating <laughs> for, mm-hmm. for our own experience, again, as John said at the beginning. But I'm curious, focusing especially on maybe not even since the start of the pandemic, but since the pandemic ended, quote unquote ended, you know, it's still a stress, but there's the immediate crisis of it has ended. What are you hearing from leaders, especially seasoned leaders out there? How are they doing? How have they switched from trying to canoe the mountains and how have they adapted or not adapted since then? Well, I think the giant self-awareness of most leaders is we were not ready for a crisis. The church wasn't ready. Mm. I say the biggest crisis of the pandemic was that it revealed a crisis of discipleship. Oh, man. That in almost every season of, of history, crises led the church to grow. I mean, one of the mm-hmm. whole parts of studying church history is the first 400 years of the church. When Rome had a plague, which we would call a pandemic, the church grew. And in other seasons and other times, persecution usually leads the church to grow. When the missionaries were kicked out of China in the middle of the 20th century, the church grew. This could be the first crisis. I don't know for sure, but this could be the first crisis, at least the first one I know about, where the church declined more rapidly during a crisis. Hmm. So what became apparent is, oh my gosh, we were not prepared for this. Hmm. We're not as Christian as we think we are. We were not as formed and ready for this. And the cultural headwaters and the influences of the culture had a bigger impact on us than we want to admit. Hmm. I run a consulting firm and we do consulting and coaching and speaking. I'd speak all over the country and literally in the last month I've been to Bangkok and other places. You know, every single place people are actually acknowledging everybody only just wanted to go back. They just want to go back. They want to get back to normal. And I can say to people, back to what? Back to the church that's been losing the millennials on record number? <laughs> like back to the church that has become vacant in lots of places in the world? Back to the church that's created vacant cathedrals that have become wonderful brew pubs in cities all over the country? Back to what? And yet there's a hunger for familiarity that has become profoundly difficult for leaders to try to lead people faithfully forward in the gospel and in the mission of the gospel. Why though? Like why, why are we unprepared for this one? Because like you mentioned other examples of crisis and responding to that and growing through that in the midst of that, by definition, a crisis is something you're not prepared for. So what was different about this lack of preparation now? Yeah. Well, that's a great question. I would probably answer it in kind of three small ways. So short ways. One is I used to pastor a church close to the Marine base at Camp Pendleton. The Marines had a phrase, at the moment of crisis, you do not rise to the occasion. You default to your training. Mm -hmm. We have trained leaders for a Christendom world, which meant we trained leaders to be able to take care of people who show up in our sanctuaries, who call us to the hospital, who are interested in our sermons, who are asking us questions. We do not train leaders to be in a world that is not centered around faith, where you're literally the mission field starts when you cross the sidewalk, not seawater. So we have the wrong training. The second part is I think we have had the wrong discipleship. I think our discipleship has been built around institutional thriving and individual surviving. So the discipleship that we've offered has been mostly confused with, hey, we need people to run our churches. So discipleship and training for church worlds are kind of the same thing. So we do mm. like you know, elder training or and call that discipleship. We put everything in the bucket of discipleship or individual self-care. I say we're like a Christian version of the Calm app. You know, like those things are not wrong. Both of those things are really powerful. But discipleship is about the formation. I mean, for Jesus, it was forming the followers to be able to be with him, take on his character and participate in his mission. And we've stopped doing that as a fundamental central activity of the church. Mm-hmm. And so I think we weren't ready in that way. And the third way is this. I think we grossly underestimated the power of anxiety. Trisha Taylor, who is a therapist who does executive coaching, says anxiety makes you stupid. And when we are deeply anxious, we don't make good decisions. And I always say this whenever I'm coaching and working with leaders, I say 
Remember that the root word for family and familiar are the same root word. So when somebody is in an unfamiliar place or has to take on an unfamiliar task or goes into an unfamiliar terrain, they feel unfamilied. They Hmm. feel abandoned. So when they talk about getting back to normal, what they're basically saying is, I want to get back to something where I feel I'm at home again. And to say to a group of folks, we're a pilgrim people who are on a journey, who are maybe not going to feel at home, and we have to prepare you to be a a journeying people rather than a, a settling people, is very difficult. And we did not prepare people for that. How much, how strong the anxiety would cause people to react in the moment. Man, that's really good. I want to kind of connect with something you said and ask a follow-up question here at the same time. Just by way of illustration, it was September, October of 2021. So about a year and a half ago now that we had the seminary that I went to, Covenant Seminary. Every semester they do a church planting field trip. And so it's a four credit course. And for the first time, our presbytery and and our region hosted the field trip. And so they came to Denver. I was asked to come down and talk to them about like what church planting is like, because I'm planting up in Boulder County, Colorado, which is a very interesting place to plant a church. And I started it by saying like, I have actually no idea why you all are taking this class and doing this field trip, because if I'm real honest, after the last three-ish years, I would be rethinking church planting if I were you. And so the mm-hmm. fact that you're here is a miraculous gift, in my view. And the fact that after everything, you know, the church has gone through this abuse reckoning and everything else, the fact that you still want to do this, I am actually in awe of you. And so I'm going to be praying for you guys as a result of that. Now, I say that because... I feel like I saw something a little bit different in them than I remember experiencing at that point. And I wonder if this is part of what you're describing. And maybe they're more prepared in ways that I wasn't Hmm. looking back. And I think one of the things that I hope changes going forward is that even though the hardware of our culture has changed and become post-Christian, the way that we're doing training and equipping of leaders changes quickly enough because I don't see the demand changing without that. Does that make sense? I feel like there's still pressures on leaders to be operating in the kind of corporate sense that you were describing earlier. And now we also need to add on the pursuit of relational everything. And I see a lot of pastors and a lot of leaders who are burning out trying to do everything they used to do and add on to that, everything that we now recognize we need to do because the supply demand relationship hasn't really update because everybody's trying to get back like you were describing Mm -hmm. earlier. Does that make sense? And so maybe just if you could interact with that and also be like, is there some hope of like the next generation of leaders coming down the pike that like maybe they won't have to deal with this as much or is that a pipe dream? (laughs) I wish I could say they won't have to deal with it. I, I um, I wish I could be confident about that. I think many people experience, many leaders experience exactly what you said. Mm-hmm. I have to be everything that the old established mental model of a pastor is. And on top of that, I've got to be like a missionary and I've got to be a social media expert and I've got to be epidemiologist. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> on sure. And I think what it points to is our deep paradigm about the leader is the expert. And until we disrupt that, we're going to be stuck. I work at a seminary. Everybody who comes to the seminary, somebody said to them, you're the best Christian I know. You should go pro. <laughs> you should go off to professional Christian school, right? And they get here and we give them a master of divinity. And then they go back into a congregation and it sounds like a like master of divinity. It sounds like a superhero, right? Master of the universe. And what they find is they are good at certain things that the culture doesn't know how to do very much, like exegete scriptures or do church history or do church polity. Nobody cares about that. Or maybe in a small town, they are the person who is like the psychological paramedic that everybody comes to. Like Mm. they're experts in certain things. But what they don't know how to do is lead a process of transformation Mm. that starts when you are beyond your best practices. Mm -hmm. So what we talk about, you know, the work I do in my, with my courses and my research and my writing and my consulting is how do you develop the capacity of people to lead when there are no best practices, when Mm. you're off the map, when you 
literally somebody asks you, what are we going to do? And your only honest answer is, I don't know. And we're going to have to learn as we go. And we're going to probably have to let go of the canoes that are holding us back. We've run out of water. So paddling harder is a bad idea. So we need to let them go. And until we learn to learn as we go and let go of the things of the past, we're going to be stuck. Yeah. We want to tap into that a little bit because I think you've used some words about building capacity that I think we want to explore. But we're curious if you would speak in a metaphor that we think is cool. It's not quite as cool as canoeing the mountains, but we like it. And <laughs> and that's the metaphor we've been using on this leadership, on this leadership journey we're on, which is that institutions and we mean institutions in the best possible way, should be a, a greenhouse. And, and by mm. the word greenhouse, what we mean is an environment that's hospitable, where mm. things are grown and they're grown together, they're nurtured, they're shepherded, but they exist to nourish the world outside of the greenhouse. So inside the greenhouse, there's pruning, fruit, is is, uh, uh, fruit gets bared, there's fruit bearing. How about that? Fruit bearing fruit happens. Bearing. There you go. Thank you. Yeah. Fruit bearing happens. And then the people that are involved in leading that greenhouse and growing that greenhouse, we've talked about how sometimes they're more of an architect where they kind of mm. know what to build. They know where to put the plants within the greenhouse. And sometimes they're more of a gardener who goes around from plant to plant and mm. nurtures it and makes sure it's doing okay. But I'm just curious, and as we look at your metaphor of canoeing the mountains and our metaphor of greenhouses, you know, we've been through these two presidential election cycles since your book was written. We fought over masks and vaccines. We've watched the country quake at the killing of George Floyd and others. And and so then as we look at this idea of greenhouses, it seems that greenhouses are ill-equipped for our cultural moment, if not broken or irreparably broken by it. And so one of the challenges we're looking at as pastors of local churches and as we hear other leaders of organizations, you know, the paradigm for Canoeing the Mountains is about getting people somewhere and being transformed along the way. And our paradigm is a little bit more about leading people to stay put and grow together in the midst of a super fractured environment. So that dynamic was present prior to 2015 when you wrote the book but it's was more looked at as a vice before 2015. And now mm-hmm. it's almost like a virtue, yeah. you know? And so I'm just curious, it's a long way to get to this question. If we reframe the metaphor from canoeing the mountains to building greenhouses, what are some questions we should be asking about building sustainable, nourishing, life-giving greenhouses as leaders? That's, that's great. Okay. So I live in California part of my life. The other part of my life, I live in the mountains of Idaho. You know, you see greenhouses in places more like Idaho than you see them in California because greenhouses exist in environments where the environment can get hostile to growth, Mm. right? So you create a greenhouse to protect from the elements. So in one sense, what you're talking about is creating a nurturing, protecting environment. Absolutely. I think there's something to be said about how hostile the world feels to people. I think what I'd like to do is think about the metaphor this way, which is what are we going to grow in the greenhouse that we're going to figure out how to transplant so that we can reinvigorate the environment? Hmm. Like, so I spend a lot of my time that actually the book I'm working now is a book on adaptive capacity and the crisis of discipleship. And I look at the biblical passages about soil and the whole notion of You've got entire places in the world where the soil has been depleted. There's a kind of planting and gardening you can do that can regenerate soil. It bears fruit and it makes the soil better. And I think in one sense, what you'd want to do is say, how can we create the kinds of plants, the kinds of fruit, the kinds of things that eventually we can figure out how to take them into the world and repopulate the soil so that the world doesn't become so hostile. Hmm. So for me, when I heard you guys talk about greenhouse, I literally went to Jeremiah 29, Yep. you know, that passage about Jeremiah, you know, I, almost any of us who've ever been asked to speak at a high school or college baccalaureate, they give you Jeremiah 29, 11, you know, for I know the plans <laughs> I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in the future. They never keep going because after then it says, because of that, I'll be back in 70 years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
So you're going to die in the exile. And so are your kids. Mm -hmm. But because I'm going to give you a hope and a future, I will come back for your grandkids. In the meantime, in this hostile environment, plant gardens, build houses, create families, seek the peace and the welfare of this area. Let that it be blessed because your welfare is connected to their welfare. I do think there's something about saying, look, our greenhouse is really a way of embodying health in this area that has feels hostile so that eventually it can be transformative of the whole culture. And then I'm going to come back someday and I'll demonstrate my faithfulness to you and take you out of this hostile environment. And I say, when I'm working with folks on adaptive change, I mean, I literally have younger leaders say to me, you know, so how long are we going to be in this adaptive moment? And I'm like, well, we were in Christendom for, you know, 1700 years. We've been in post Christendom for about 10 minutes. I'm probably dying in the exile and you probably are too. So probably a while. So let's think long-term about this and how our presence can make a long-term difference. And if I can, just circling back to your idea about institutions. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite books on institutions is Hugh Hecklow's book on thinking institutionally. Little tiny book. And what he basically does is says that institutions are a concept that is really about anything that is bigger than a personality. Hmm. You create institutions to protect things that need to exist beyond a generation. Institutions aren't just about the status quo. They're about preserving things. So he said, like, my favorite institution is called the weekend. I'm so glad we have things called weekends. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Right? 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 So institutions are really about preserving things that go beyond personalities or persons. And when you realize you've got these large projects that are bigger than any person, institution needs to preserve that ongoing work. I just came back from Mm. spending Holy Week in Spain and I was in Barcelona and the Sagrada Familia is a big cathedral that they have been working on for a hundred years. It's beautiful and it's still not done. And so Antonio Gaudi, who's the architect, died a long time ago. Thank God there's an institution that continues that work so that thousands of people during Holy Week could go through there and be inspired in a new way, including seekers who probably wouldn't have shown up in any other cathedral during Holy Week, but they came there because of its beauty. And I think they saw something of God's beauty. That's what an institution does at its best. It preserves something Mm -hmm. that is so beautiful that it deserves to exist longer than the personality who inspired it. Man, I love so many things about what you just said, but I think I especially love the reminder and pointing out the importance of the soil because Mm -hmm. I vividly remember a professor who blew my mind at Covenant, Anthony Bradley, who's a Christian ethics professor, who pointed out that the parable that Jesus tells when he says that Christians are called to be the salt of the earth, he's not actually talking about a preservative that ancient Near Eastern farmers understood that a certain kind of salt was actually a fertilizer. Hmm. And so salt mixed with manure is what <laughs> is what Christians are called to be. And part of what we've been describing in this this very post-Christian and post-institutional moment that we're in right now is a winnowing and an accelerating in one of two basic directions in the soil of our hearts, right? Is either toward a salt of the earth, a softening or a hardening of soil that is especially taking place outside the walls of the greenhouse, but we're Mm. bringing it in too. Mm. And so to probably break and overextend the metaphor of greenhouses, right? It feels a little bit more like greenhouses have kind of almost overnight been turned into bunkers or Mm. foxholes where if anybody walks up on your bunker, not wearing your uniform or speaking your language, Mm. then you shoot them. And, That's hard when that's happening in the Monday through Saturday part of your life. We're seeing churches and institutions of any and every kind being turned into bunkers. Mm. My question is this, in the midst of that dynamic, Mm. those are some high mountains, right? What does it look like to ditch the canoe to try to turn a bunker into a greenhouse Mm. right now for any leader of any kind of greenhouse? Well, I think one of the parts that you have to remember is what is your mission? What's your purpose? Hmm. When I was training to be in ministry, everybody said the goal of a leader is to cast a compelling vision. 
I actually think vision is overrated right now. I think we live in a world where anybody with a compelling vision probably isn't seen very far because we're living in a very disoriented world. So what we really need is a sense of values. This is what's really important to us. Hmm. This is what is clear about our identity. I think of values as like your core DNA of your organization, your, your congregation. We need to get really clear on our values and we got to get really clear on our purpose. Why do we exist? So to me, when people talk about having mission, vision, and values, I think I'm a guy who literally led by vision for most of the time I was a pastor. I think what's changed is now in this world, we don't have the upside. Hmm. So what we need is values and our mission. What are we called to? What are we called to be about? When you start thinking about that, you start realizing if my mission calls me to move forward into the unknown, and I thought I was like Lewis and Clark in the core of discovery, trying to find a water route. And I discovered that the mental model of the world for 300 years was wrong, that there isn't a water route that would go across the continent of North America. Then you've got to decide, are you about canoeing? Or are you about exploring? You got a decision to make. Do you go back and preserve the great history of canoeing? Do you make sure that the next generation enjoys canoeing? Do you stay on familiar terrain and circle up and canoe? And every now and then when I'm snarky, I'll say, you know, commit yourself to making canoeing great again. Like, do you <laughs> do you do that? Or do you drop the canoe and say, we're going to start walking forward into the unknown? And, you know, let's be really clear about this. If you came on this trip because you thought it was a canoe trip and you're an expert water navigator, the folks in the Corps of Discovery, they invented a boat. And all of a sudden we tell you that we're going to drop your boat. In fact, we're going to burn your boat for firewood. That's a bad day. It's an identity shaking <laughs> day. Like literally, you're just a dude who carries luggage now. You're not a person who's an expert water navigator. That's a loss. That's loss that we're facing. But what causes us to go through that loss? It's because we want to maintain our values, our integrity. We want to fulfill our mission, a purpose, and our deeper purpose than this water route. We're going to keep going forward. That's what drives us forward. Connect a couple dots for me really quick. Mm. Because I never really thought canoes were all that great anyway, so it's fine. Mm. But connect that with what you were just saying about institutions existing to preserve something that needs preserving longer than a generation. Yeah. How do you preserve what needs preserving and burn the canoe and not confuse the two? Yeah. Okay. So I would say the central spiritual practice of leadership is discernment. Hmm. That's the activity you're doing all the time. I mean, every organization we work for, I'm doing strategic planning for universities. I worked with an international NGO. I work with churches all over the spectrum. I work with mega churches and tiny little places. I mean, literally as diverse as you can get, mm -hmm. every one of them has to ask the exact same questions about what are we called to be? Who are we? What is our purpose? What's our reason for being here? And your sense of that is so important that if you don't know that, what you will do is you will just hunker down on what helps you survive instead of being really clear on the reason why you exist and why you also change. That is so helpful because I mean, just that discernment working out both vertically in terms of calling and purpose and horizontally in terms of reading the landscape in front of you yeah. and being able to understand what's necessary to be able to cross the mountains. I mean, I think that is, if there is anything in our discipleship that has been weakest, I feel like that is at least extremely competitive. Yeah. So I had no idea how I was even hoping that you would answer that question. And that is awesome. That is really helpful. When we talk to churches who are going through or organizations going through leadership transitions, the question you used to always ask to a person who's a candidate to be the pastor or the CEO or the executive director is, tell us what your vision is. I said, that's a ridiculous question. <laughs> it doesn't matter anymore. People would say stuff like, you know, in the 1990s, there was, they quoted Wayne Gretzky, you know, skate to where the puck is going, you know, well, what if we live in a world with 14 pucks, right? What? And they're all basketballs. Right. Like what if, like <laughs> the question you should be asking is tell me about your values. Tell me about what's never going to change. Hmm. 
And then tell me about your capacity to discern everything else that you can prepare us to give up. Like that's the hard task of the day, getting wow. really clear on what are you never going to change. And as Jim Collins said, once you know it's never going to change, you need to prepare to change everything else. And taking people through that process is central to the work that we have to be able to do. So let's ask some questions about that because taking people through that process is not easy. Mm -mm. We're going through a little bit of a process at our church, which I'll talk about in a minute. But in your book, Tempered Resilience, the one that came out in November 2020, you really try and help leaders develop this capacity to lead people through change. So, you know, the first book is a little bit more on like perspective and, and then you really dig down into the heart and soul of leaders and tempered resilience. In fact, I think you said that resilience comes from the stress that creates strength. Mm. We're using the word capacity and you've used that word a little bit. What do you see the relationship between resilience and capacity being for a leader? What are the things that where they overlap? How are they different? Could you speak into that? Yeah. So there's lots of books on resilience right now. So anybody interested in resilience, this is a good moment to be alive because there's lots of really good books. On it. <laughs> the definition of resilience that I use is by Andrew Zoli. And he's interesting to me because he worked with nations that needed to be resilient. Like how do you come back from genocide if you're Rwanda, right? And what he defines resilience as Resilience is the ability to maintain core purpose and integrity in the face of dramatically changed circumstances. Maintain mm. core purpose and integrity. Now, if you spend 10 minutes with me, you're going to know that I'm not a maintain guy. That's not like my thing. I work on change. But maintaining core purpose, that's your mission. Maintaining integrity, that's your values. What he's saying is when you're in a dramatically changed circumstance, a disruption, what's at stake is your deepest, most important things. Hmm. You'll tend to want to like hunker down and survive so bad that you'll give up your mission and you'll give up your values. And that's what we see happening in churches. Literally, we saw in the pandemic churches who like gave up loving their neighbor so that they could have the right to meet. <laughs> Think about that. They gave up loving each other. I consulted with a pastor of an 8,000 member church in the South who said, after 31 years of being a pastor, I wonder if I wasted my life because the way I saw my congregants talk to each other on Facebook was vile. That was his wow. phrase, vile. I said, wow. what made it that way? He said, they have been so tutored by the discussion, I'm going to call it bluntly, the nomenclature of the talk radio, that they were just horrible with each other and their political divisions taking on each other. Talk about losing your core purpose and your integrity. So what Tempered Resilience was about was how do you keep that? How do you keep that when you're disrupted? And for me, it was in the face of what leaders told me was the most painful disruption of all, which was the sabotage of our own people. Mm. Oh, man. Yeah. Tempered resilience is about the resilience for being able to be faithful to your vision when your own people turn on you. And that's what that's <laughs> all about. When I was doing Communion in the Mountains, I, wherever I went to speak, everybody wanted to talk to me about the chapter on sabotage. And so I ended up writing a book about how do you develop the capacity, the formation capacity, to be a person who could be a tempered, resilient leader, a wise, flexible, strong, clear leader in the face of sabotage. And that's what tempered resilience is about. Yeah. Well, one of the things that overlaps between the two books is this sort of capacity and resiliency that the leader has to have, but then also that he has to create in his own people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, hey, you get to the mountains and you're carrying canoes and you're like, uh, well, let's turn back. Right. So our church We've been renting a facility for about five years now. And in South Florida, we say that we kind of won the church planning lottery because the building that we got was just incredible for the price that we got it. And just church plants die down here because they can't find somewhere to meet. And so we, we had this incredible opportunity that God provided for us. But the challenge is we think that we're going to have to move the market has changed down here. It's sky high. 
you know, God can obviously provide something that miraculously, but we're also kind of going, maybe we need to be prepared that it's not going to be the same going forward. You know, and as I've been working through that in my own mind, I've been thinking a lot about the lessons from canoeing the mountains and tempered resilience. You know, our church kind of wanted to approach this as like, okay, let's get to the next location. Mm. What's the next location? And I kind of realized from your book, it's not about finding our location. That's part of the problem, but it's more about helping the church become the kind of people who could actually stick together, love each other and love their neighbor as we move to a new location, wherever that way may be. It's not just about finding a place that can hold a hundred people. It's about shaping a congregation that now has bigger hearts and thicker skin and a stiffer backbone as we go through this time of transition. Mm-hmm. And the book was super helpful for me just thinking that through. But, you know, I want to get super practical. What are some practical things I could do to generate capacity in myself and our people as we consider this move and this ambiguity? Mm. Well, so tempered resilience was all about developing the um, the resilience that what I call the tempered resilience in the face of resistance, right? So it's a formation process that starts in vulnerability. The metaphor of the book is a blacksmithing metaphor. Take a piece of steel, put it into a forge. It's got to get to 2000 degrees. Literally, it's got to get to the place where it is soft and malleable. Hmm. To me, that's the metaphor of what deep, vulnerable self-reflection is about. So there's an authenticity and a vulnerability. So I'd say one of the things to cultivate, how do we create a safe enough community where we can talk about all the things that make us anxious, all the things that make us worried, all the things that are going to make us want to like buy the first piece of real estate we can get just because we're afraid, you know, like going to make us make bad decisions. That awareness, I always say that the vulnerability of leadership is, is like the heat and it happens when you're in the middle of it. That's the self-reflection. I'm going to, tomorrow I'm speaking to a group of pastors in Southern California, all on that notion of how do you cultivate that kind of vulnerability that allows us to be open to the Lord, that allows us to God to shape us. Then there needs to be the safety of relationships. That's the anvil in the black Smithy metaphor. And if you think about just those two things, the notion of the vulnerability of the experiences of the honesty to be vulnerable self-reflection and secure relationships that hold us, then we can be prepared for almost anything after that. Then the rest of the formation process happens from there. Hmm. So what I would say is one of the parts to think about this is cultivating an environment where we don't have to fake it till we make it live in bravado, you know, whistle in the dark, but instead ask, what do we need to do to become the kinds of people who can together go through experiences like this and trust that God's going to shape us through them. I'll give you one of my favorite metaphors. When Dr. King led the Montgomery bus boycott, it was a year long boycott. He was 26 years old, 26 years old, a year long boycott. Basically, you know, of course, after Rosa Parks, they boycotted the bus They were waiting for the Supreme Court to rule. Thurgood Marshall said to them, I don't know why you're doing all that walking. Just let it go through the court system and the courts will take care of it. And the courts did ruled against segregated buses. It's so interesting. Thurgood Marshall is one of my heroes, but he missed this point Mm. because what happened in that year, faithfully walking, is they developed the capacity for the entire civil rights movement. All the rest of the marches, all the rest of the protests, all the rest of the nonviolence, all the training, it all came out of that year. And so one of the things is you realize the practices of that experience were way bigger than just that one experience as much as it was. It was the formation for the whole generation and everything that's come after that. That's Um, so encouraging. Man, I have, gosh, I have so many questions now. (laughs) (laughs) You just generating more and more for me. I do want to ask, so when you're talking about developing this capacity and developing this resilience, man, one of the really amazing phrases that has been super helpful for me to realize and understand kind of what is, what's been happening, especially to communities and people in relationships over the last several years. I heard Greg Lukianoff, who wrote The Coddling of the American Mind, he used this phrase to describe it as reverse CBT. So cognitive behavioral therapy is CBT, which has this approach of, you know, 
being able to discern the false accusations and promises that you're hearing or the criticism in your head that's actually not being said by somebody else and actually kind of like doing some of that resilience building, I think that you're talking about, you know, in the therapy context, but that principle very much applies. And so when he's talking about reverse CBT kind of being a increasingly dangerous cultural dynamic within institutions, et cetera, I keep thinking about how we have these deformative liturgies in our lives that do the opposite of what you just described, the bus boycott. Instead of preparing us for the rest of the civil rights movement, whatever the liturgy that we're participating in is undoing whatever resilience that we have Mm -hmm. and is almost sensitizing our people. And I know, like John and I, we've been talking a lot about how social media is absolutely a, if not the primary factor, a top three contributor to that. But what are some of the other leadership dynamics or organizational dynamics that you're seeing that is doing the opposite of that marching, that's counter-marching or counter-formative and counter-productive for building resilience? Like what are the things that we don't even realize is getting in the way and frustrating our efforts to do what you're describing? Hmm. I haven't thought about this enough to give a good answer. So let me just give you a hunch and assume it's probably 80% wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I think one of the things I'm really aware of is one of the advantages of larger churches is you have the capacity to provide people with lots of programs and opportunities to easily enter into the life of the church in lots of ways. Now I get to work with churches that are across the spectrum. I've worked with some mega churches and I work with some really tiny ones. And what I realized is one of the biggest differences is if you're in a larger church, you naturally begin to believe that faithfulness is I support and give money to the church so that it can provide professionals to do the Christian work for me. So what's interesting is many of the churches I work with, they have low congregational engagement low community, Mm. um, low loyalty while they're really big because professionalism has taken away some of that capacity. Mm. In other words, imagine being in a family where if you had a professional chef in your house the whole day, you'd never learn how to cook. Right. And I do wonder if one of the things we need to think about, I think more and more programs are remedial. We have Mm. programs because mm. we don't have other capacities. Like I had a church in Southern California. We used to do a program called Dinner for Eight. You signed up to be able to go to dinner as a couple with six other people so you could have conversations, so you could make friends. We'd have to organize it. We'd have to promote it. We'd have to create flyers. We'd have to get hosts. We'd have to work hard on it. Something that in any church in the Midwest that happens every Sunday without anybody even thinking. Right? <laughs> I'm from St. Louis, so I'm going to give you an amen on that one. Right. right. Or, I mean, yeah. just go to any place in the South. There's all these places in the country where like you can't get out of church without someone asking you to come to lunch. We needed a program because our culture hadn't taught us to be hospitable. So Man. if you start recognizing that some of these things that we're most proud of are actually signs of our need for growth, we might actually start shifting the way we think about them. Man. It's interesting that you use that illustration because our church plan is called The Table. And so hospitality is pretty significant for us. However, one of the things I realized when we planted was that a vision around hospitality is going to gather at least four times as many people who long for it and have never experienced it than know how to do it. There you go. Yeah, yeah. That's a great. Think about that. Think about how your discipleship is actually teaching people how to embody hospitality. So we found this in our church People came to our church and everybody would say, this church is so friendly. You're going to love this church. We found it was friendly for all the insiders. A whole bunch of people just sat around our patio feeling like they weren't welcomed. <laughs> mm. And our ushers and greeters team were really good at making sure people had all the pamphlets and the you know the stuff they had to do. We hired two couples from the Midwest, one from North Dakota and one from Iowa, and said, can we just have you just do what you do and put a name tag on you so people will see that you're an example. Mm-hmm. Like they just did what they did. And all of a sudden we became a warmer church. We needed people who knew how to do this in their bones. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. It, well, it's interesting to connect to something that you were saying earlier about this expert culture. I think one of the ways that that doesn't just inhibit and get in the way of leaders, but also gets in the way of communities and transformation is the 
lack of experience or knowing how to do something, even like hospitality in a sustainable way, you actually feel like you are unable and incapable of doing it at all because you're mm-hmm. like, I've never experienced that. So you get paralyzed and stuck. You know, most likely what I've seen is a pursuit of distraction or things that help you not to think about that, but that only increases the loneliness. And so right. even that lack of grace that we have for ourselves, not just, you know, leaders for ourselves, but also like anyone and everyone for ourselves, that really, man, honestly, I'm just kind of at a loss on how to dismantle that as a leader. Like, where do you even begin dismantling that to cultivate that salt of the earth soil instead of the bouncing off of soil? Well, one of the parts we teach people is that adaptive leadership, which is this leadership that goes into uncharted territory, that doesn't have best practices, that has to be learned and has to face loss. You have to name it before you can navigate it. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that has to do is you got to be able to name. Yeah. You got to be able to, without judgment or without too much rancor or emotion, be able to say, hey, this is like our lack of capacity. We're not mm-hmm. great at this. We need this. This is what's true about us. I always tell people all the time, you can't name it, you can't navigate it. So you, you got to start by developing the capacity to name stuff. And do it in such a way that it doesn't feel like you're shaming people when you do. It's just a fact. You're helping them see, right? Man, yeah. Normally my head's spinning with ideas. Now my head's spinning with like more questions and conviction, honestly, in a lot of this. So if there was something that you could say to especially kind of like younger leaders who I'm just imagining are probably feeling very much like there was an ideal that they were not necessarily expecting would be their normative experience of whatever organization or team that they're leading, but they sure as hell did not expect it to be this. And as they are doing some of that grieving that you're talking about and moving toward acceptance, what would you say to encourage them in that quest or journey of discovering and and really clarifying, honestly, that's the word I'm looking for, clarifying their purpose and values as they go forward? Yeah. So one of the things we often tell people is, look, today's problems are built on yesterday's successes. Yeah. That's a premise of systems thinking. In other words, so much of what we're facing today is because of things that did work a generation ago. The problem is you have people in your congregation who remember those days and they want to go back. Mm-hmm. And you need to be the people who understand that there's no faithfulness in that. You have to be faithful to your generation. This is the time that we've mm-hmm. been given. You know, this is what we've been called to do. And so I love telling the story, but I'm always sheepish about it because I've never been able to find the source for it. I heard it told when I was in seminary. It was basically this. When the Jewish ghettos were being emptied by the Nazis and people were being sent to the concentration camp, the soldiers marveled that they heard the Jewish grandmothers teaching the grandchildren the Torah, the alphabet of the Torah, just the Hebrew alphabet as they were walking along. They were saying to them the alphabet. When they asked them why, they said, if they know the alphabet, someday they'll find the Torah. And if they find the Torah, someday they'll find God. And these kids are going to need God. And I sometimes think all we're doing today in this world is we are teaching people the alphabet so that someday they will find the scriptures, so that someday they will find God. For I know the plans he has for us. It's plans not to harm us. We may die in the wilderness, but we are going to be faithful I tell people all the time, it's not about keeping your church alive. Paul's churches are not alive, (laughs) but we are here. It's about passing on that faith. Whatever you do, figure out the next thing you can do to keep passing on that faith to new people so that someday when God's blessing comes back to the church in a particular way, it will bear fruit. That's amazing. I love that. I love that. It's so encouraging. I think it's so encouraging to hear that and just... I know so many pastors are just grinding it out right now and dealing with the reality of reality not being what we want it to be and to kind of go, okay, let's reframe the moment. Let's reframe what success is. Let's reframe what faithfulness is even. Mm -hmm. That's really good, Todd. I think that will encourage some guys and ladies out there who are leading. Yeah. You know, this has been so rich. We really want to thank you for your time coming on and your work that you've done with these books. We're looking forward to the next book. When did you say that comes out? I've got a set of leadership books coming out in summer of 2024 and then a discipleship book in 2025. 
so much for not being able to see anything ahead. <laughs> Back to where we started with Todd Bolsinger, Prophet. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Todd. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Good to be with you guys. Thanks. All right. Well, that was incredible. I think I said my head was spinning at least three times in the second half of that conversation, and it still is. But John, what's your so what? Like 40 of them. That was so meaty, pound for pound. That was just a great interview. He just had so much stuff that I feel like you and I are going to have to process offline, but we'll do some of that online yeah. right now. So he said there were three things that he thinks we've gotten wrong, and one of those was a wrong view of discipleship. And we've confused discipleship with running our churches. So we're going to disciple mm. people to run our churches. We're going to make them into volunteers. We're going to teach them to support us financially. And you're like, okay, well, hold on, John. That's what Christians do. And you're like, yes, Brad, you and I believe that the church as an institution that looks more like a greenhouse is a super important thing. Mm-hmm. And so- we want to say, hold on, like we're not saying not to do those things. It's really good when Christians serve each other on Sunday mornings and when you volunteer for the kids ministry and and when you give because you want to help the general operation of the church and so they can preach the gospel and do the work of the kingdom. That's good. But when our model of discipleship, when the most weighted point is we got to keep this church running. And then therefore we organize discipleship around that. We're missing something. When we're talking about greenhouses, he said, one of the questions we should be asking is in the greenhouse, how can we create the kind of plants or the kind of people or the kind of disciples that go out and reinvigorate the world? And it's like, man, there is a real tension there. So with that tension, it makes me ask questions about the model of church that we're doing that we have these models of churches that do great things. But one of the weaknesses of that is you sort of have to shape discipleship around running the church. And maybe there's something there for us to explore. Maybe as we're thinking about models of church in the future, how can we lean more into creating disciples that go out of the church and reinvigorate the world rather than just trying to get more people there so we can run the church or training people that if they help run the church, that's discipleship. That's one of my takeaways. Yeah. As you're talking about that, it reminds me of something I say to our staff on a pretty regular basis. We need to make sure that as a staff and you need to hold me accountable as a pastor leading this team that we never want to use people to get ministry done. We want to use ministry to get people done. Hmm, I love that. Because, you know, what he was talking about, like showing up on Sunday morning or giving, you know, that kind of a thing. On paper, that ministry people relationship can look really similar in either of those directions in those areas. But there is an ethos or like he was saying, an integrity or a character that or maybe even a purpose or a mission, right? That changes the nature of how that happens, as well as the effects that it creates, right? Instead of people being burnt out, hopefully they're being formed and shaped in and through those liturgies of serving and volunteering or giving or what have you, that kind of a thing. And so, and that kind of dovetails into my so what, which is, man, we talked at one point about how one of the legacies of the seeker movement and the church growth movement is a kind of overly corporatized or business approach to leading and strategic planning and vision. And I think his distinguishing between vision and mission in favor of the latter actually might be a different way of saying what I was trying to articulate then. Because yes, describing a desired end state, good, but I wonder if that has created a blind spot where our focus should actually be, which is on faithfulness. Hmm. And that feels far more explicitly and directly rooted to mission and purpose and understanding. And that ripples down leaders, the community as a whole, the organization, the team together, individuals within that greenhouse, et cetera. And I wonder if that's also one of the reasons why, like when he brought up the part you were talking about with what are the plants that we want to 
cultivate inside the greenhouse to then create a more hospitable environment outside the greenhouse, it made me wonder if the difference between vision and mission and purpose feels very much like the difference between, okay, the vision is to get the plants outside so that they are contributing to a more hospitable environment. But the mission, the purpose is like, okay, but which plants are they? And how do we know that those plants and cultivating that particular fruit is going to be the most helpful in the environment outside? That actually is an exercise of discernment. It wants less vision, but way more clarity on purpose. Like you don't have to have as clear a vision for that. You actually do need a very clear mission and purpose in order to get there though. Otherwise you won't. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, no, that's good. You know, even in our church planning process, I've wrestled with the weight of each of those things, vision, mission, and purpose. And I think I kind of came in going, vision controls everything and like gave that weight. And I'm not saying that's not true, but I think what I found was things were changing so rapidly in our culture from the time we landed here in 2014 to now 2023. It's been so tumultuous. Everything's changing. Then I'm like, how do you, and you've said this, like, how do you come up with vision when like the ground is constantly moving? Well, then the vision almost becomes survival, you know? And so I think what he said about focusing on mission instead of vision, which is like, I'm thinking about that as an imagined reality in the future that we're heading toward. The mission is like what we do, what our people are about in order to get to that vision. And then the values are like, what are the things we hold dear so we can do the mission so that we can reach the vision. But, you know, if you think about the canoeing the mountains metaphor, it's like, he said it, their mental map was wrong for 300 years. Like how do you have a vision when your mental map is wrong? And also it sort of becomes like, okay, well, we don't even know what reality is right now. We've got to focus on shaping these people so that as they go out and they're figuring out what reality is like, they're a healthy presence for Jesus. Or if you're leading an organization of 501c3, whatever the mission of your 501c3 is. And so I felt a little validated in that. I was like, man, (laughs) mission and values are super important. And sometimes you can even focus on those things over vision. Yeah, man, where he landed at the very end with the story of the Jewish mother teaching the Hebrew alphabet to her kids, I think there's a lot that you can appreciate about that. But I think our people are really tired of hearing me say that my dream is that at the table, three or four years after I'm gone, nobody will have ever heard my name. (laughs) And that my kids will raise their kids in the church, right? Yeah. And so it's at once intergenerational and not about me, but that story and the way he framed it and talked about how like none of the churches Paul planted are still here. Yeah, that was interesting. That really kind of pushed back on some things that, especially around institutions and the preservation of things that need to be preserved for more than one generation and Mm -hmm. that being a value. That's a really good reminder and challenge to that because ultimately it's in Christ's hands and he will build the church and not us. And we've got to allow our dream of building the church to die as it should. Otherwise, it's going to be really hard to see the seed start to grow. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's helpful. First of all, I do hope that at some point in your church, it'd be super awesome if they're like, hey, who's that old guy in the back running the slides? And he's like, (laughs) oh, that's the founding pastor. (laughs) That would be awesome. (laughs) But then secondly... We are saying that we got to rethink some of what our expectations of normal is to go back. And he Mm. touched on, you know, us being exiles. You know, if you're in Jerusalem, there's a lot of things you can do differently than when you're in Babylon. And some of it is how do we build this stuff? When you say building the church, I think what you're meaning is not that we're not building the church. We're just trying to figure out how to build a church in Babylon rather than in Jerusalem. We're trying to figure out how to play the game when we don't have home field advantage. And that's challenging. I think we have a lot of questions to follow up with after this interview. Well, just to put that into perspective, because I think that's exactly what we're trying to do. It was an innovation that happened during Israel's exile in Babylon that the synagogue system was birthed. Hmm. And that synagogue system 
was what the last part of Acts 2 is riffing off of when it talks about the church devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of the bread, the fellowship, and the prayers. Like that is an echo and an evolution of that original exilic innovation of the synagogue. And hmm. so how do we build the greenhouse now in light of Babylon, not Jerusalem? And then also, and this is what we're saying that has been super helpful that he added to our paradigm, which is how do we hold it loosely such that it allows what needs to die to die, to fall down to the soil and to take root into something new? Yeah. I don't know the answer to that question, but that's exactly the task of what it means to canoe the mountains as a leader. Yeah. Brad, and for those of you listening, I hope you feel this way as we wind on this episode. We've been on a journey and I feel like we are further along on that journey than when we started in the very first few episodes. We don't have clarity on everything, but we're asking better questions than we were mm. in the beginning. And I think we have a little bit better map of where we might be going, although it's still not totally clear. And we have a little bit better understanding of who we need to be if we're going to lead people mm. there. So I feel that way. And as you're listening, I hope you, as you've tracked with us over the past episodes, that you feel like you're with us in this journey as we try and figure this stuff out and talk to people who are a lot smarter than us. So we're glad that you joined us today and we look forward to you tuning in next time. Thank you. Yeah, take care. Thank you for listening. If you found this episode helpful, text it to a friend. Please take a minute and rate this podcast. Leaving a review helps other people find us and connect. You can send us questions or feedback by emailing us at posteverythingpod at gmail.com. Thank you.